Lord, many are beginning to recognize, as often happens and has happened over the last few years of studying through your word, that these verses are tracking our lives. It's wonderful, Father. So many have found themselves in the exact place that we seem to be studying in Scripture. And whereas, Lord, I myself cannot claim to know anything about that, you are purposeful and intentional, and we know you are doing exactly what you plan to do. We know you're applying your word in ways that we couldn't even comprehend. You're touching us and changing us. And Father, what a blessing it is just to open the pages of your book week in and week out and find such amazing relevance to our lives. Teach us tonight, Holy Spirit. Relate these things to us. Make it personal, Lord, that we're not just reading and studying history or looking forward to prophecy, but Father, that we are right where we are taking this personally. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Joshua is about taking possession. I said that last week. If you want a word for the book of Joshua, it's possession. It's taking possession. The land was already given to the people of Israel. We know that. We saw that back in, in chapter 1. Verse 3, every place on the sole of your foot, that your sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. It's already yours. It already belongs to you, Israel. Now just go take it. Take possession of it. That is the whole concept of this book wrapped up in a nutshell. Taking possession of something already given. And we know that's historically true. The children of Israel went in to take possession of the land he'd already given them. The Lord had already gifted to them. Prophetically it's true because Joshua is that portrait of Jesus Christ who is coming back in days yet to come soon, I believe, to take possession of the earth, there to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. But I want you to remember that as historical and prophetic as the Bible is, it is also incredibly personal. And I encourage you to take the study personally. Because I believe that the book of Joshua is here also to encourage us to take possession of that which God has already blessed us. What God has already given us, what He's already purposed for us to have, it's there, it's just awaiting so often in our lives for us to take possession of it. To grab hold, to lay hold of it. As we saw, Israel has only ever held one-tenth of what the Lord actually gave them. I said last week, it's like a child coming to a Christmas tree and pulling out one present and there are ten presents under the tree, opening the one and going off to play with it, never to return to the other nine that are sitting there waiting to be possessed. The name's on the tag, the present's available, it's there, it's ready to go, it belongs to that child. And yet in Israel's case, nine gifts sat under the tree, unopened. Unthinkable. Especially with our kids in this day and age. But what about you? Will you take hold of what the Lord has promised to you? Ephesians 1.3 Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And you might want to jot this phrase down. This hit me like a, like a hammer this week. Faith. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. That's faith. That's a great definition of faith. Taking possession of the promises of God. 
and the degree to which I will take possession of what God has already given me, that's the depth of my faith. Israel had one-tenth of a faith that could have been full. Are we taking possession of the promises of God? Speaking of our greatest possession, Paul says the following, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, Jesus grabbed me. Am I going to grab back? He's got hold of me. Will I now lay hold of what He has in store for me? What He has planned for me? What He desires for me? Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now in the book of Joshua, we're going to run across people who have the faith to step out and take possession of the promises of God. There are going to be three specific characters that you'll note in the book of Joshua, and then a lot of situations that happen with Israel as a people... We've already looked at one of those characters, one of those people, you're going to see him throughout the book, and that's Joshua himself, that that picture of Jesus Christ, that picture of the Lord who takes the people in to take possession of the land. You're also going to see Caleb coming up in several chapters, around chapter 14, taking possession of the high country, the hill country. 85-year-old Caleb, ready to fight the giants to the day he dies. What a stud. Caleb is a faith stud. I don't know if you want to coin that phrase. It may be misunderstood by those outside of this barn tonight. But faith is taking possession of the promises of God. And that's what Caleb was about. I want to take possession of what I know the Lord has given to me. You're going to see an unfortunate individual by the name of Achan. Who rather than take possession of the promises of God. Decides to take possession of something that is banned. As the people are going to go in and take the city of Jericho, they're told, you don't take any of those spoils for yourself. What I have for you, the Lord says, is much better than what you think you can get on your own. Boy, there's application there. How hard we work to take possession of what we have worked for. And the Lord's saying, you know what, if you'll let go of that and follow me, i got better. You're going to see Achan grab some spoils from going into Jericho, bury it under his tent, and bring uh, trauma and tribulation to the entire people of Israel because of his lack of faith, because he takes possession of his own works as, as opposed to the promises of God. And you're going to see Rahab, a harlot named Rahab, who learned to lay hold of that which has already been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now we're not even going to speculate as to why the two spies came into the house of the harlot. But I do want you to understand something. Rahab was not an innkeeper. Rahab was a whore. Her, the name for what she was here, where it says harlot, the name, the Hebrew word is Zana. Zana. And it means a prostitute, a hooker, a harlot. That's what Rahab was. Her name, Rahab, means broad, and I'm sure there were men who referred to her that way. 
You're going to have to think about that just for a minute. Right on. (laughs) Josephus, along with the Babylonian Talmud, and later rabbis tried to write off this embarrassment. This Rahab, who becomes involved in Israel down the line. As a matter of fact, she's going to end up marrying a guy and uh, having a child and being related to great-great-great-grandmother of King David. David has a prostitute in his lineage. Wonderful. So the rabbis changed it a little bit, or they began to say, well, maybe she wasn't really a prostitute. Maybe she was an innkeeper. That word Zana, maybe that just means innkeeper. Well, if she was an innkeeper, I'm not sure if I would want to visit that kind of inn. I heard a story recently, actually not recently, it was a long time ago, a story that I read, a true story about a youth pastor who took his kids on a, on a boating trip. They went up far from where they lived. They lived down in Southern California, and they went up Northern California area, and they went on this boating trip. And then on the way back, they, the kids were worn out. They had, a, I think, a breakdown in the van or something. But ended up in a small town and decided they just needed to stay overnight in the town. So they went in and got rooms in a hotel. But as they were getting out of the van to go into the hotel, a police officer stopped the youth pastor and said, What are you doing? Taking all these kids in here. It's a hotel. We're just, we just were tired. It's late. And we just need a place to stay for the night. The cop said, Well keep the kids close to you because a lot of prostitution goes on in this hotel. It was, for all intents and purposes, a brothel, just not called that, but that's where the action happened in this town, and uh, in the book I read where the story was told, the youth pastor said they prayed all night long. <laughs> they were, it was a very spiritual night for them. But Rahab was not an innkeeper. She was a prostitute. And, and an embarrassment. And what's interesting to me is what often embarrasses us about ourselves or others is wonderfully eclipsed in the light of faith in God's grace. This woman Rahab, this prostitute, this harlot who ultimately ends up helping out these two spies and Israel, she had a faith. And because of her faith, you're going to see in a few minutes, she's listed three times positively positively in the New Testament. This Rahab the harlot. Her legacy ends up wonderful, eclipsed, this shame, this embarrassment, what to others would be, oh, we don't want to call her a prostitute, she was an innkeeper, we don't want to acknowledge what she really was, and the truth is, what she really was, is eclipsed completely by faith in the grace of God, and that should encourage you tonight. I said on Sunday morning that, uh, what a wonderful thing that Rahab was a harlot, and was saved. I mean, that gives grace to at least most of us that we, boy, if a harlot can be saved, I got a good shot. People kind of looked at me like, what is in your past, Rick? Hey, (laughs) what embarrasses about ourselves or others is eclipsed in the light of faith in God's grace. Let's read the story. Verse 2, it tells us it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And so the king of Jericho, verse 3, sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out, but a lot of people know this Rahab. Have you noticed that? The men seem to be able to find their way to her. The king knows her. He says to her, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. 
But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, these men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But, verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on road on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as they, as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Rahab lied. She lied to protect the sons of Israel, these two spies. And the men went rushing off to capture them, but they were there the whole time, hidden in those stalks of flax up on her roof. The first action we see of this harlot of faith, <laughs> of this Rahab, who is supposedly a faithful woman, a woman of great faith, the first action we see is lying. It's the first thing she does. What do we do with that? Does the ends justify the means? Well, we'll come back to that thought in a few minutes. Hold on to it. Because first we need to deal with our two spies. You may recall that the great downfall of, will, of Israel back in the wilderness, back in the book of Numbers, we studied how Israel came to this place, Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, they said, oh, we, we shouldn't just go into the land, shouldn't we send some spies? And so they sent 12 spies into the land. In fact, turn your Bibles quickly back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 for a refresher beginning in verse 20 it tells us Moses said I, I said to you you come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is about to give us see the Lord your God has placed the land before you go up take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you and do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed and all of you approached me and said let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter but that wasn't their motive or intention at all we find out later the motive and intention was to find out whether or not it was safe to go into the land at all to spy it out they were afraid we got to know if we can do this or not it was a big if question that followed these twelve spies but Moses said, verse 23, The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country and came out to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, and they brought it down to us, and they brought us back a good report and said, It's a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us, yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents. And you said, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us up out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the son of the Anakim there, giants, big guys. And then I said to them, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how... Now remember, at this point, this was 40 years ago, 40 years from the beginning of Joshua. They'd only been out of Egypt a year and a half, maybe two years, max. The Red Sea was a fresh experience when they came to Kadesh Barnea. They watched waters parted. They went through the waters. They watched those same waters crash back down on the entire army of Egypt. And now as they stand on the border, they're afraid... Moses says, remember where we came from and how we were protected? Say, God, he's still here. You see the cloud? You see the fire? He's with us. But verse 32 says, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you 
on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. And so they sent spies. And what happened? When the spies went and came back, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were very positive about what the Lord could do. The other ten caused the hearts of Israel to melt in fear. Is Joshua setting Israel up for another situation like this? Why are you sending two spies in again? Listen, this time the spies are sent in not to see if they could take the land, but how they would take the land. Completely different motivation. Not if, but how. To choose the way. It was a strategic mission. That's why they were sent. We're told back in Joshua 1.11. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are going to cross this Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. And during the three days, while the people were preparing to go in the camp, during those three days, the spies spent three days in the land, most of the time hiding out in the hills. But they would come back and in three days, go to take the land. Joshua prepared the people to go before he sent the spies. They were going to see how they would go about taking the land. Now, by the way, some commentators have had a little problem on, uh, with this whole thing about three days, saying, well, if there were three days and they were pre- preparing their provisions and the spies were gone three days and they really didn't go into the land three days later, no, it's a, it's a concurrent action. While the people prepared, the spies went in. Three days, three days, it's the same three days going on at the same time. But here's something I want, uh, something else to recall about the two spies. We briefly talked about it on Sunday. These two unnamed men are an interesting prophetic picture of two other unnamed men that we read of in the book of Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. And the parallel and the connection is important because these two spies end up not just being spies, they end up as witnesses to Rahab and her entire household. They come to Rahab and they express to her, they share with her, they witness before her, and their witness, <clears throat> their witness saved her and her household, and the same is true of you and of me. We have jobs, we have roles. As was prayed just earlier, we all are sent into different areas and have different things expected of us, different places where we spend our lives day in and day out. Some are school teachers and some are city employees. And others are boat detailers or small business owners or students or retirees. It doesn't matter where the Lord has you working, what He has you engaged in. Some of us are teaching people to fly. And I just, again, picking on Spencer, I just love the fact that he gets people up in the air and then starts talking about Jesus. That is evangelism. Yeah. That's fear tactics. And it's great. Put the fear of God in them and then say, do you want to accept the Lord? Absolutely. You know? It's wonderful. But we're all sent into this world to be witnesses. That's why we're here. You are not here to do the job that you're doing. That is a means through which you are here to be a witness. Now Mark cuts meat. Now eternally, the significance there is not great. And I like a good steak. But a witness, that's important. That's what we were called to. That's what we are to be about. Don't forget that. Don't let Satan distract you with what you're doing in your day-to-day so that you become ineffective for the Lord. You go into your jobs, into your homes, into your relationships as a witness. That's what you've been called to be. 
That's who you are in the Lord. You might say, oh man, but witnessing's hard. <laughs> it's hard to break into this world. Anybody experience that? It's just hard to witness sometimes. Even if you're a bold person, you throw it out, you feel like it's falling on deaf ears. It's hard to break through. It's like there are walls up, and you know there are walls up. Just like the wall around Jericho. It was massive. A huge wall. The first set of spies, that original 12 spies that weren't witnesses, they looked at Jericho and they said it's got a wall all the way up to heaven. That's a big wall. And they thought there's no way we're going to get through that. Sometimes in our lives, evangelism seems far from us because, man, there's a wall around my sister. There's a wall around my friend. I can't break through that. And you know what? You're right. You can't. You can't break through that. Any more than Israel could have broken down the walls of Jericho by themselves. By the way, according to recent archaeological digs, the wall around Jericho was most likely dual layered. It wasn't just one, it was two walls. Two walls. A double walled city, hard to get into, but the witnesses, the two witnesses, they got in. They got in. And because they weren't daunted by the size of the walls, by the barrier between them and where they needed to go, because they got in, Rahab is saved. Her household is saved. A prostitute. Now what would you say if you knew here at the bridge someone was now attending and had given her life to Jesus who had spent her entire life as a hooker? The women would say, praise the Lord. The men would say, hallelujah. And the women would be making sure the men didn't know who this woman was. Maybe not, I don't know. But sometimes our world seems to be walled up. It seems hard to get into. It feels double-walled against the message of the gospel. And that's because, as Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the wall. Satan trying to blind people from hearing the gospel. You speak the name of Jesus, and Satan tries to throw up the wall of guilt. You share the gospel message and Satan tries to throw up the intellectual barrier of, oh, that's ridiculous, that's a fairy tale. The God of this world is hard at work. But listen, in spite of all of the work of the God of this world, Acts 1.8 tells us you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Where, Lord? In Jerusalem. And in all Judea, and on out to Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so I remind you, as we shared last week, as we studied, the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit is not sensationalism, it's evangelism. And so we can be the effective witnesses that God is empowering us to be. You want the Holy Spirit in your life? Ask for the Spirit. You want the power and the gifts of the Spirit? Man, seek them with all that you have. But seek them for the purpose of being a witness. Of bringing the Lord Jesus to someone whose life is lost. That is a great reason for praying for the gifts of the Spirit. We are empowered as witnesses. So the witnesses get into Jericho and Rahab lies to save them. Verse 8 going on. It says, Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, Now, just that line alone, verse 8, sounds a little, uh-oh, here comes the prostitute. She's, you know, hit him away, and now she's coming up to them on the roof. What's going to happen? Watch what happens with Rahab the harlot. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. 
and the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed we've heard about all this stuff and when we heard it verse 11 she says our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you for the Lord your God listen the Lord your God he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath that is a dramatic statement of faith your God is God well it's flowing out there your God is God He is a God in heaven above and on earth below. Incredible. Now therefore, she says, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Verse 13, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about, when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. And hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. And then afterward you may go on your way. And you recall that the two witnesses of Revelation, they were dead in the streets of Jerusalem three days before they returned and then are raptured in the sight of the whole world. Same thing with these two witnesses. There's that parallel. Hide yourself for three days and then when your pursuers, after they return, you can go on your way. Verse 17, the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and all your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. In other words, stay in the house, you'll be safe. You and all your family, anyone you gather in here, we won't touch a person in here. But if you're on the street, you will die. Reminiscent of the Passover, when everybody was in the house, covered and protected. But out on the street, it was a different picture. And they say... Verse 20, if you uh, tell this business of ours, we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And now the pursuers had sought them all along the road but had not found them. And then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and they came to Joshua the son of Nun And they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Now the story of Rahab by itself is intriguing. But there again are pictures and types within the story that are not just intriguing, they're astounding. Let me give you three quick types to ponder that we've just seen. First of all, the scarlet cord. 
scarlet cord that they say to hang from the window. When we see that scarlet cord, it will protect you. It will save you. I mentioned Sunday morning there is a scarlet thread, a scarlet cord, if you will, that runs through all of Scripture, all the way back to the very first sacrifice. Think about this. Do you know what the first sacrifice was? Any guesses as to the first sacrifice? Exactly. I, that is so cool. You guys got it. The clothing for Adam and Eve, made of animal skins. The first sacrifice, check this out, it was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. The first sacrifice was a sacrifice done by the Lord for the purpose of covering Adam and Eve. Sacrifice for covering. Blood was spilt by the animals from whom God took the, the skins to cover Adam and Eve over. Scarlet thread begins there and continues on. The offering of Abel's lamb, Genesis 4.4. The near sacrifice of Isaac and the replacement sacrifice there of the ram that, that Abraham finds in the thicket, Genesis 22. To the Passover blood spread on the doorpost, Exodus 12.13. To all the picturesque blood sacrifices in Israel, Leviticus 1 and 5. See how quickly we're moving through those verses? Isn't that great? On and on and on down through Scripture again and again, you can trace the red scarlet cord through the Bible all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ where the blood is poured out by Jesus Christ. And as we're told in Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Back when we studied Leviticus, I share this with you. That word atonement is found in one place in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 verse 11. Which reads, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The atonement. It's the only place you'll find that word in the entire New Testament. But the word atonement there is literally translated exchange. By whom we have received the exchange. His blood for my blood, that's atonement. My blood is required because of my sin. His blood was paid to cover my sin. Exchange, atonement. And so we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the exchange. And the scarlet cord is a picture in type of that. But wait, there's more. We have in Europe today, mostly, and even in some American cities, we have certain phrases that we're accustomed to, and we know exactly what they're talking about. You know what I mean when I say the red light district. That's the area of the town where Rahab probably would have lived, the red light district, where the prostitutes could be easily found. You know what I mean when I mention the scarlet letter. That famous Hawthorne book referring to the scarlet letter, that red letter A that would be plastered on a person who committed adultery. There's something to this, this picture and even all the way back in Rahab's day, there was symbolism involving scarlet. A man who wanted to find a prostitute in a town, all he had to look for was a red painted windowsill. The windowsill in front of the house, if it was painted scarlet red, you knew a prostitute resided there. You could knock on the door and go about your business. The red painted windowsill, the scarlet sill. There's a scarlet cord, there's also a scarlet sill, but think about what you would see if you were one of the children of Israel marching on Jericho and there's the wall and there's the scarlet windowsill and there's the scarlet cord. What would you see hanging on the wall? A picture of the cross. Scarlet sill, scarlet cord. Another picture in type interesting. 
But what was the scarlet cord made out of? It would have been made of flax. Flax, the flax that was on her roof. And that was typical in the day, to take flax and to stand it up on the roof to let it dry out and be used for multiple purposes, one of which was making rope or cords. This scarlet cord would have been a scarlet cord of flax twisted together from that same material that Rahab used to cover and hide the spies, the flax. Why do I mention that? Flax was also the material they used to make linen. Linen in the Old Testament times was made of flax. And the garments of the priests were made of linen, which would have been made from flax. In fact, the robe and the ephod of the high priest was of woven linen. Follow this through. If you're having trouble getting where I'm going with this, I'll just give you the flax. Sorry, sorry. I, I knew I was going to take flax for that. The flax speaks of the righteous covering of Jesus Christ. That's what the flax is a picture of, covering. What were the spies covered with? They were covered with flax. What was the rope that saved her life, saved Rahab and her family, covered them, protected them? It was a rope made from flax. That symbolism here is powerful to me. It speaks of that righteous covering. The two spies were covered. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. But then Isaiah says the following. He says, I will rejoice greatly, Isaiah 61.10, in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. That's one of my favorite words, by the way, in the Bible. Exult. It means to jump. Anytime you see that, that's what he's talking about. My soul will exult in my God. My soul will jump off its feet before the Lord. And he says, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Just as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. And speaking, by the way, of brides and bridegrooms, and being adorned and being covered and being robed, as the priests were robed with, with robes of righteous linen made of flax, Drawing this out further, Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, the covering, that which makes us righteous, that covers us over, that we might be righteous saints. And lest anyone misunderstand what these righteous acts are, Paul says in Romans 3.21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even, listen, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The most righteous act of a saint, pictured in Revelation 19 as a garment that covers the righteous acts of the saints, is believing in the righteousness of God. It's not what we do at all. What we do will flow out of that belief. It will motivate our actions and our behavior. But it's the belief, it's the faith. That faith that takes hold, that takes possession of what God has already given to us. The spies were covered by it. Rahab was saved by it. The high priest wore it. You and I as saints are robed with it. The righteousness of God by faith. Now, speaking of faith, consider Rahab again. Think about this woman who we just read her story. Rahab began as a woman in a depraved condition. That's the first thing to know about Rahab. She was in a depraved condition. She was a prostitute. 
Now it's entirely possible that possible that she was a a possible. She's a prostitute. It's possible. I don't know what she that she was a temple prostitute for paganism. Doesn't make it any better. But that would have been the par for the course. The whole idea of temple prostitution. Maybe that's what Rahab was. But either way, she's a pagan. She's a Canaanite. She's a harlot, and she's living in a Canaanite usurped land. This is not a good resume to come before the Lord with. Okay? And yet, and yet, though she began in a depraved condition, Rahab had a dramatic conversion. A dramatic conversion. Look back at verse 9 again. It tells us, she says, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, whom you destroyed, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And there's a process here that's very interesting to watch. How this woman moves from depraved condition to dramatic conversion. She moves from, first she has intellectual facts. She, she has understanding. She said, uh, you know, we, we heard about what happened. We got the facts. You know, the, the, we read the Daily News, the Jericho Times, and they came in and we could see what, what had happened. That, that's the intellectual. They heard that first. She had the intellect, but that moved into an intense fear. Because when they realized what was really going on, she said, our hearts melted. We were scared to death. Intellectual facts moving to intense fear and then finally intentional faith. From fact to fear to faith is the process through which God brought Rahab. Fact, fear, faith. She runs that whole gamut. You know, the facts, that's the middle of sin. Yeah, I'm starting to hear what you're saying. I get it. I, I see where you're going with this. It, it, it makes some, some logical sense, but the facts then give way to emotional experience, in her case, fear. I got the facts, but now my emotions begin to get stirred up. This will happen with people, by the way, as you're witnessing Jesus to them. They may begin to be afraid. Don't back off. Because fear is not a bad thing. Fear is a useful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that you bash them over the head and say, You're going to hell, you're going to burn. You know, but allowing a person to feel emotionally their lostness is not a bad thing. It's exactly what happened with Rahab. We heard about you, and then we realized you're coming our way, and we were scared to death. But what did that yield in Rahab's life? Intentional faith. She recognized, she bought it, she took hold of it. I believe. I, I, I was afraid, but now I see this God must be good. No, no other God. When did, by the way, the Red Sea happen at this point? It was 40 years before this. 40 years ago. We're just, what, five years out from 9 11? And we hardly remember that. Rahab had a definite and developed faith over this time. Fact, fear, to faith. And people will often travel that route when they're being changed, when they're being converted from one way of thinking to another. They'll begin with fear. Or begin with fact, move to fear, and then go to faith. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's a good thing. The second I begin to recognize His greatness and my smallness, that's a good thing. It's the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools, on the other hand, despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, 7, uh, John 16, 8 tells us then that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will coddle the world, will try to make it easy, will design churches to look like office buildings so we're not offensive. The Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict. That's what Jesus said. The Spirit's going to be in the world convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness, the difference between the two, which is a vast gulf, and then finally judgment. you got righteousness or sin, and if you're in sin, you're judged. And your only hope is righteousness, and the Holy Spirit will convict the world of this. That's fear. That's a frightening thing. But Hebrews 11.31 tells us, that ultimately in Rahab's case, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab, who began to pray and ended up with this amazing, this dramatic conversion. Rahab is one of two women even listed in Hebrews 11. Two women. The other one, Sarah, wife of Abraham. The wife of the father of the faithful, Sarah, who is a major player in the Bible. Rahab has one chapter. And the Spirit determines that she's going to be listed in the hall of faith with one other woman. Sarah, the righteous wife of Abraham, who Peter later compares. He says, hey, wives, you want to be like Sarah. First Peter chapter 3, I think, maybe chapter 5. In there, look it up. You want to be like Sarah. And then the Hebrew writer says, oh yeah, and another great woman of faith. Dun, 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 dun. Rahab the harlot. He even refers to her that way by faith. Rahab the harlot did not perish because of her great faith. She's in that, that hall of, of heroes, if you will. People who are just incredibly faithful. By the way, a little side note. Um, it had been 40 years. 40 years since the Red Sea incident. 40 years And I mentioned that a couple of times for this reason. The Lord had not only allowed the usurpers of Canaan 420 years to repent. People who say God is not merciful. He gave the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, all the ites that lived in Canaan's land. All those people who usurped the land, he gave them 400 plus years to repent of it. But then what did he do? He brought the people through the Red Sea with a dramatic and an amazing, uh, miraculous, supernatural act. Word from that spread, and then God waited 40 more years before coming to the borders of the Promised Land. Yes, it was judgment for Israel, but it was also mercy for the Canaanites. You got 40 more years. Now, I would think 420 years would probably be enough to let someone decide whether or not they were going to believe in the Lord. And he says, 420 is what I gave them, but I'm going to give 40 more. And he does the same with us today. Peter says it's, it's because of God's patience that Jesus hasn't even returned yet. That's why. He, he's not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Hebrew writer then to tell us that Rahab did not perish along with, along with the disobedient. And that's important. Hebrews 11.1 1, Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient, indicating that they had a choice because disobedience always requires a choice. You choose to disobey. So the people in Jericho chose to rebel against, chose to disobey the Lord. 
which is why they will be taken down as we come up to, I believe it's chapter 5 in the book. Rahab, on the other hand, chose faith, and she acted on that choice. Another place in the New Testament, wonderful spot. Speaking of Rahab, again, in the positive, James chapter 2, verse 24 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The whole faith works argument is bunk because the bottom line is if you have faith, the works will show it. We don't have to argue about, well, is it faith that saves you or works that saves you? It's faith that saves you, but if you have faith, you're going to do the works. If you have no works, I question if you have any faith at all. Because if you truly believe in the Lord, it's going to impact the way that you live your life. I truly love my wife. You're going to see evidence of that. Works. That's what James is talking about. But he connects Rahab in his writing, in his book. James connects Rahab to Abraham now. Not just to Sarah as in the Hebrew writer's book. But now James connects Rahab to Abraham as an example of faith at work. She was in a depraved condition, but had a dramatic conversion. And now Rahab has a decided confidence. Look at verse 21. He decided confident. She talks to the spies. She listens to the spies. She begs for salvation from the spies. And they guarantee it to her if she will keep her part of the deal. And she says, verse 21, According to your words, so be it. Interesting phrase. You'll hear it again in the Bible. According to your words, so be it. Does the statement sound a little bit familiar? It is almost word for word what Mary spoke to the angel who heralded Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1 verse 38, Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Rahab says, According to your word, so be it. May it be done to me according to your word. And that, my friend, is the attitude of a true bond servant. Lord, have at me. Do with me according to your word. Whatever you want. I don't care what it is. If it's sweeping up in the back, great. You know, if it's parking cars, wonderful. If it's cleaning around the house for my spouse, that's great. Whatever you would have me do according to your words, so be it. Whatever you want, Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. The bondservant in Scripture, that word in the Greek, doulos, the bondservant, the true servant of the Lord is going to say whatever you want. Do it, Lord. And use me as you will. You might say, whoa, wait a minute. We're comparing the prostitute Rahab to the Virgin Mary? How can you even make that comparison? Listen, because Rahab was Jesus' mother as well. Rahab is one of Jesus' mothers. What are you talking about? She ends up in the line of Christ. Rahab is drawn into Christ. She started out in a depraved condition. And she had a dramatic conversion. And then a decided confidence. And now Rahab is drawn into Christ. It's absolutely astounding. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of, of David the king. And Matthew continues to trace the line all the way down to Jacob who was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary by whom Jesus is born who is called Messiah. So Rahab is in the hall of faith in Hebrews. She's a picture of faith at work in James. And she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. This harlot, Rahab, mother of Boaz who married Ruth. 
David's great, great, great grandma. By the way, in the lineage of Jesus, four women are mentioned. Four ladies, four interesting women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Considering those four who made it into the genealogy of Christ, you would think, oh, they've got to be great, godly, pure, holy women. Not so. Rahab the prostitute. Tamar, prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite, not even a Jew. She was a complete outsider. And the fourth one is Bathsheba. We all know about Bathsheba's little situation with David. An adulteress. Two prostitutes, an outsider, an adulteress in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God makes no distinction. God is not shocked or embarrassed by our sin and our failure. It doesn't frighten him away. Though the rabbis who would read about Rahab would later try to call her an innkeeper because she's an embarrassment, not the Lord. Even in these positive places in the New Testament where she's mentioned, she's still called Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot with great faith. Rahab the harlot whose faith is at work. Rahab the harlot who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. It doesn't seem to bother God in the least. Why is that, Lord? It's because anyone who has a sinful background, and I'm guessing it's probably every one of us here tonight, anyone with a sinful background who comes to Christ finds the end to shame. Paul says, Romans 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I come to Jesus, and shame is a thing of the past. And Rahab, throughout all eternity, can say, Yeah, I was a harlot once. I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I now have laid hold of the Lord who laid hold of me. I'm not ashamed. Because that has no hold on me back there. And one of the things that I hear from Christians probably more than anything else is the struggle with the past. The struggle with what I was. Hey, forget what you were. It really doesn't matter how bad things were, how dark, how ugly, how awful. You can't out the grace of God. And once you come to Jesus Christ, you shall not be ashamed. Rahab didn't just believe. Rahab, the harlot, had faith. An amazing faith. All Jericho did believe. Jericho believed and they shuddered. As James tells us, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, great. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And that's the key tonight to this chapter. Faith without works is useless. You can be given the gift of faith, but unless you lay hold of it, unless we take possession of it, it's useless. It doesn't do us any good. Rahab reached out and took possession of her faith. Unlike anyone else in Jericho, she acted upon her faith. And in this point, you may say, okay, we got to get back to it. Her action was a deception. Her action was lying. This is faith? That you lie to save someone? I mean, is God okay with that? People who study and, and propagate situational ethics would say, of course it is. They'll use Rahab as an example. She became saved through this action of lying. It ended up good. Let's be clear about this. There is nowhere in the Bible that ever indicates or says that doing something wrong, even for a good purpose, is okay. 
There is no value judgment placed here on what Rahab did, by the way. And that's one of the things I love about the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't make value judgments. Um, Solomon had over 700 wives and concubines. That doesn't make it okay. It's just an acknowledgement of the truth. That's what happened. He had over 700 wives and concubines. But you can't find me one verse in Scripture that God says, and I was okay with it back then, just not now. It's not the truth. But the Old Testament shows people as they are. It's a great thing about it. It just shows people as they are. Rahab lied. Yes, she did. Acknowledge it. Okay, she did. That's not why she's called faithful. She's faithful because she believed in the Lord. Her actions were a deception, and it's not okay. But she did believe in the Lord. The Old Testament shows people as they are. The New Testament shows people as they are in Christ. I love that distinction. Abraham in the Old Testament lies. He sleeps with his maidservant. Not exactly the picture of faithfulness. And yet you get over to the New Testament. What is Abraham? The father of the faithful. Look at a man named Lot. Lot in the Old Testament lived in Sin City and probably sat on the Sin City City Council. Yeah. And yet Lot in the New Testament is called Righteous Lot. Because in the Old Testament it shows people as they are. In the New Testament it shows people as they are in Christ. Saved, righteous through faith. Rahab is a harlot in the Old Testament. She's holy in the New Testament. Oh, oh wait, Rick, but she's still called a harlot. True. But in all cases, she's used as, as an example of a woman of great faith. Why? Because in the eyes of Jesus, sin does not define as faith does. Our sins and our failures, though still there, though still there, are not the definition of who we are in Christ Jesus. We are all in Christ, I'm assuming, here tonight. You will, I guarantee you, at some point between now and next Wednesday, you are going to sin. I'm not speaking prophetically here. I'm just saying what's the the truth. You're going to fly off the handle and say something you wish you hadn't said. You're going to kind of fudge on something. You're going to do something or say something, act in some way, and you're going to look at it later and go, Man, one week. I was shooting for one week. But you know what? That's not what defines you in Christ Jesus, is it? Your faith does. So that the Lord looks at each one of us tonight and He will again next week and He will all through the week look at us as He looks at Rahab the harlot. Not as harlots. As holy. As righteous. Turn to 2 Corinthians. I want to show you one thing before we finish tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. something that we as Christians just need to understand and grasp. Especially if you're still sitting there going, yeah, but she still lied. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Watch this. We must all appear, Paul writes, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Oh, great. So there is a ju- I thought, Rick, you said our judgment was at the cross. It was. Your judgment for eternity, whether saved or not saved, happened at Calvary. And if you believe in the Jesus who died on Calvary and resurrected, then you will be saved. Your judgment has been taken care of. You will not go through the judgment that people will go through who rejected Christ. And that's in Revelation 20, the great throne judgment. However, there is a judgment seat for us. The judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about this before. The word judge or the word seat there, it is literally the bema. 
the bima of Christ, the, the bima seat. It was that seat in, in Greek, in the Greek language, and in the Greek Olympic Games, it was that seat on which the judge of the game sat, and after the runners ran the course, they would come up to the bima seat to receive judgment on how they did. And what was the judgment? It was rewards. The loser didn't get slapped. He didn't get horse whipped. He just got, you know, what, what color is the ribbon for third place? Or fourth place? He just got the, you know, not the blue one. Different color ribbons for the different rewards based on what was done. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Now flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keeping that in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 12, Paul again is writing here to the church at Corinth. He says, now, now if any man builds on the foundation, which he just told him was Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become, listen, will become evidence. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Now think about this. You've got either gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw. Put it in the fire. What's going to last? Gold and the silver and the precious stones. The rest is going to burn away. It's going to get fried. It's going to be history. Now again, this is not judgment for salvation. That judgment happened at the cross or will happen at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. But this is the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where judgment, where there is a reward. And we're told here, Paul says, our works will go through the fire. Our works are going to be tested and will go through the fire. Now let's think about this. Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 tells us something in the description of Jesus that fits both of these verses. We've got to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says. And our works, all that we've done, will be tested by fire. And Revelation 1.14 tells us that the eyes of Jesus are like flames of fire. And just kind of go with me on this. I'm going to give you just a little opinion. At the day of Christ, we will stand before him. And all that we've done, if it's wood and hay and straw, non-eternal stuff, he's going to just look at us and it's going to burn away. It'll be wiped out. It'll be history. It'll be toast. Now you might say, great, when you stand in there naked and ashamed, I'm not going to have anything left. I'm going to stand in there holding like, you know, a ruby with nothing else. That's the way we look at things. That's exactly how we see things. That is the typical human reaction. We focus on our failures. Jesus focuses not on our failures, but on our faith. And the whole purpose of burning away all of this chaff is not so that we can be seen with what we don't have. It's so that what we have will be seen. And so the gold and silver and precious stones will become obvious. Look at it this way. Take a wedding ring. Husband, you might want to try this. Take your wife's wedding ring out into the backyard and just cover it with dog poop. Okay, maybe that's a bad idea. But I want you to get this picture. Now think about this. And I'm not being crude on purpose here. We walk around, and, and, and the parallel is, is simply this. We walk around, as it were, with wedding rings that are covered in dog poop. And we go... Oh, I don't want that to go in the fire because then people will see what I really am. 
we focus on the failure. Jesus says, let me burn all that stuff off so we can see what I've done in your life. So we can really see the beauty that is underneath all that garbage that you're clinging to. We come before Jesus and our idea of judgment is, oh, oh, oh no, oh no, i gotta, I got to you know, pack all this stuff around me because I don't pe- want people to see who I am. Yes, you do. Because in Jesus, your faith, no matter how little, is a beautiful thing. We worry about all this other stuff getting burned away. It's going to get burned away. And every one of us will be standing there. And you know what the rest of us are going to say? Wow. And that, that Steve really, he's not a bad looking guy. I never saw him this way before. I'm totally kidding with you. We are, we are going to find, even in ourselves, we're going to go, oh, I didn't even know that was part of me. I didn't even realize I had that to give. I, I didn't know I had gold in me and precious. I didn't know I was that beautiful. And Jesus will say, Come and enter into my joy. This is good stuff. All that's going to be left when the wasted, non-eternal stuff of our lives burns away is our faith. And that's why John says, 1 John 5, 4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcame the world, our faith. Again, Josephus, Babylonian Talmud, the later rabbis, they tried to write off the embarrassment of Rahab calling her an innkeeper. But those things, gang, that we used to be known for, those embarrassing, maddening, and and even dogging sins that that we have trouble letting go of, they no longer define us in Jesus Christ like Rahab. Our faith defines us. We are not called to take possession of something that will leave us ashamed. We're called to take possession of God's promises that will leave us, like Rahab, standing in the line of Jesus Christ. Connected in the genealogy of Jesus. She comes before in that genealogy. But if you are in Christ, you come after in that genealogy. You are in the line of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing to be ashamed of there. And you might still say, but man, I'm just not good enough. You're not listening. If you think you're not good enough, man looks at Rahab and says, check out the prostitute. Jesus looks at Rahab and says, look at the faith. Look at the faith. And Father, we want you to see our faith and to expand and to grow our faith. And we pray, Lord, that however you have to do it, that our lives would would yield gold and silver and precious stones. That we would intentionally not be about the wood, the hand, the straw, the non-eternal stuff. The stuff that we know is not going to last. The material things and the physical things and the emotional scars and worries and, and, and all that stuff that... It just gets attached to us and we cling to. And somehow we think maybe that, maybe my past is my covering. That's not a covering. Burn it away, Father. And blow it away like chaff. Jesus, I pray that now, even before we come before the wonderful Bema seat, that judgment seat, before we arrive there, would you with your eyes of fire look into our lives and burn away the chaff and grow our faith. We pronounce, we say together, Lord, tonight, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Drive that away. And Lord, whatever it takes, may I grow to have a faith like Rahab. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
God bless you. Have a great week. Don't be ashamed.